So now, Father, we come to you and ask that you would uh, do just that, that you would speak to us. We need to hear an increasing measure in this world uh, your voice rather than the voices that we often hear, the ones in our own lives or the ones in this world and culture, but we need you to speak to us, to remind us the truths that we can affirm, to remind us that we are known and loved. We need even for you to speak to us and remind us of our sins, the way that we're not pleasing you. For even this week, a lot of us have stumbled and fallen. Uh, We've lived more in anxiety and worry than we have in faith. We've put our trust in princes and power rather than in your ascended son. Uh, We have envied uh, those that seem like they have it all, although we know cognitively they're probably miserable, but they look so healthy and they look so strong and Why are other people succeeding that don't know you when we're being faithful and it seems like our lives are hard? All of this can be oppressive unless we enter into your throne room and we see there in our final destiny. When we realize uh, what you have done in dying on the cross and being resurrected, conquering death, hell, and the grave forever, and now being ascended, advocating for us, even right now, interceding for us before the Heavenly Father who loves us and who has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit of the inheritance which is ours. And so often we oppress that Holy Spirit in us. We live more by what we think we need to do rather than asking you for help. So God, as you'd say in your word, guide us by your right hand that tender picture of you, our Father, gently leading us, your often disobedient people, so firmly and kindly, you lead us with your everlasting arms. Give us the security we need in the fact that you have covered everything that brings us shame. And in this moment, we live and we breathe and we worship, but we know that one day our heart and our strength will fail, and yet you are the strength of our hearts and our portions forever. Uh, We pray, we can't leave this prayer without praying for some specific things in this denomination and uh, the loss of three giants uh, of the faith. Pray for the Smallman family and the loss of Steve. Pray for the Reeder family and the loss of Harry and the whole uh, Briarwood church that's grieving this morning. Pray for the Keller family and the loss of Tim and the whole Redeemer church uh, that's grieving uh, for him this morning. Uh, Be with those places of grief and give them peace. And now we pray that you would speak to us. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to jump right in because we have a lot to do today, and it's a lot of heavy lifting, but it's an important topic, and the topic is this. Let me put it before you simply. When is association endorsement? 
as you interact with culture, when do you associate with somebody and when is that endorsement of somebody? It's a question that I get all the time. It doesn't come in this form. It comes in various forms, but I have to kind of lead people to say, this is actually philosophically what you're asking. And it's a question that we're going to have with increasing measure in this culture. When you associate with somebody, are you then endorsing their behavior? In other words, how do we reach this culture and reach the loss while maintaining our purity and our holiness without being holier than thou? Uh, to put it in a metaphor, what would you do if a college friend called you and they said, I know it's been 20 years, but I'm in town. I'd love to see you. And uh, you, you said, great. I haven't seen you in years. I'd love to see you too. Let's go to this restaurant. It's my favorite restaurant. I know the owner. I know the waiters. I know everybody there. You'll get to meet a bunch of my friends. I'll meet you there at noon. Great. And so they go there at noon, and you go there at noon, and you're excited to see your friend, and you open the doors, and you know everybody there. And your friend stands up, and he's like, hey, Andy, over here. And he's got a, a Biden-Harris shirt on, and he's reading a Hillary Clinton biography. And you go, I, can I sit with him? Now, everybody's nervous because I use that as the example. He's got a Magna hat on. And he's wearing a Trump shirt. Pick whoever you want. It's not a political point. It's just the fact that you severely disagree with what he's representing. And now you have to sit with him. And you're kind of nervous. Like, does everybody think that I'm now, because I'm with him, I'm endorsing this when I actually want to distance myself from this? The result of that is that we find ourselves in a protest boycott culture. I mean, and it's on the right and on the left. You can think about Bud Light and their sales just tanking. But before that, Pepsi sales tanked when Kendall Jenner, a couple years ago, if you remember this, probably don't, when Kendall Jenner was in a uh, commercial giving a Pepsi to cops right during that defund police and, and text, Pepsi sales tanked. Or maybe it's do I stand or not for the national anthem? Or maybe it's do I wear this shirt when I'm an MLS player that has a gay pride symbol on it? Or do I make a wedding cake? For that couple who's getting married and I disagree with their sexuality, do I make a wedding cake or not? I'm a really good wedding cake maker. They just want me to make a cake. By making a cake, am I then endorsing that marriage? And it gets even more complicated than this. It's happening all the time, all the time. In my office, couple after couple after couple, Andy, our daughter, not marrying the guy we want to, or marrying... A, a girl that we want, don't want her to marry. Do we go to the wedding or not? Can we pay for the honeymoon? Can we? And I've, I see time and time again, even couples divided. Like couples, both God-fearing, lovely couples trying to seek the Lord, saying, I, I am going to go, or I'm not going to go, or we don't know what to do. And the whole question behind all of that is this. When is association endorsement? How do we live in this culture? To put it in other words, how do we live in this culture in a way that is engaging with the culture and yet still pursue holiness without enabling people, but also distributing the love and the grace of Christ. All right, I think I've got, as they say in my business, I think I have all the, um, the trains hooked to the locomotive. We can now leave the station. Uh, the only way, here's the solution, the only way that we'll be able to figure this out is to look long and hard and to meditate deeply 
on the character of God as revealed in Christ. That's our only hope. That's our, our only hope to figure this out. Who never distributed a cheap grace, but always gave it freely. So I'm going to read a lot of texts, a primary one and then a bunch of other texts, and that's good because you don't need to hear from me, you need to hear from the Bible, right? So Matthew chapter 9, this is our primary one, I'll come back to it later in the sermon. As Jesus passed on from here, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, the IRS is bad enough, right? I mean, I think that's like a universal, we all agree with that because nobody likes paying taxes. But that being said... Tax collectors in this days were a step ahead. I mean, they were mean, they were cruel, they charge you for things that you actually shouldn't pay. Uh, it was a different situation altogether. So Jesus goes to this tax collector and says, follow me. He rose and he followed him. Jesus reclined with him at the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this, and they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so that scene sets it up for us, doesn't it? Here Jesus is associating with all of the sinners, all of the tax collectors, all the people that the world hates. And the Pharisees are asking the question, wait, we thought you disciples said that your God was the Holy One. We thought he was the one who's pure. We thought he's the one who came to save the Jews. We thought you're, you're saying he's the savior of the world and he's hanging out with the riffraff? How could he ever do that? How could he ever endorse their behavior? How could he ever be a part of that group? And Jesus says, well, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have convictions, and it doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't very intentional about sometimes disassociating with people. He made the cat of nine tails, which takes about two to three hours to make. And he ran the money changers out of the temple. So that was a very intentional thing to do, to say, get out of here. And there's plenty of times where the gospel calls us to disassociate. For example, Ephesians 5, therefore do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're the light of the world, a light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Or Titus 3. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning once and then twice, have nothing to do with them. So here's a person, we all know these people that stir division. They don't do it directly. They're too smart for that. They just sow little seeds of discord. Hey, have you heard this? Or they get you to believe things aren't true or just kind of seed all of those things. They're divisive people. They're very good at it. Scripture says, warn them once. You see it happening? Warn them twice. And then get as far away as you can after that. 
So there are times where we disassociate. Second Thessalonians 3. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Stay away from them. Don't associate with them. Romans 2, we're also called not to judge. Therefore, have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, don't just look at people and condemn them and judge them. 1 Thessalonians 4, and so we ask you, finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you've received from us, you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we've given to you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, let me summarize it. If we look at everything across Scripture, and if we look at the character of God, here's what we see. And Henry Krabbendam helped me. He, he taught me this 20 years ago. Uh, great scholar Henry Krabbendam is. Henry Krabbendam said, Andy, if I'm speaking to a non-believer, I treat him like a gnat. I'm trying to get into a safe place. But if I'm speaking to a believer, sometimes I have to use an iron fist and a velvet hand. And what we see across the board is that when Jesus was interacting with people who didn't know him, who didn't have the power of God, he was very, very kind and long-suffering. He always seemed to give them a lot of time. He always seemed to give them uh, the benefit of the doubt. He always was engaged with the hurting, whether it's the leper or the sinful woman or the woman caught in adultery or uh, the, the people that are hurting, the impoverished, the blind, the people that are put out to pasture by the rest of this culture. Jesus always seems to have a heart for them. But when it comes to the self-righteous, the prideful, the ones who think they've cornered the market on religion, Jesus is very harsh. I, I skipped over it, but I'm going to go back to the text, Matthew chapter 23. This is Jesus speaking. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Scribes and Pharisees were the, the religious people of the day, the pastors of the day, that said, it's not about mercy, it's about sacrifice. It's about you working hard, keeping everything in the law right, and then maybe Jesus will let you in. You hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Bunch of hypocrites. I mean, imagine Jesus saying this. This is not meek and mild Jesus with like a dove sitting on his shoulder. This is the son of God who is being very, very direct with them. You travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And then he's in there hanging out and dining with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. What do we make of this? How do we figure this out, this character of God as we find in Christ? You know, we typically do the opposite. In the culture, we, we're kind of in love with our own self-righteousness. And if I can be frank, what a lot of churches have made a living doing 
is uh, gathering together with people that think the same, dress the same, act the same, and then looking at culture and chastising it rather than weeping with it. And yet the people within the church that are complete hypocrites, we just give them a long leash. Where God says, maybe y'all should separate a little bit more from each other. You know, the two things that where it says in Thessalonians, where it says separate from each other, that's talking about Christians, not non-Christians. And maybe you should go out into the world because you're light and they need darkness. But we typically do it the other way. So I know this is a little unnerving to some of us. Let me give you four then points. Because when Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, it's the only time recorded in Scripture where Jesus has said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So four kind of subpoints on that point. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is how we can flesh this out. First of all, as Christians, we can live in this world and give mercy to individuals. I think it's really critical to understand that Christians' view of culture is that we give an unnerving amount of grace to people, especially those that don't know Jesus, with an unwavering commitment to personal holiness. Both of those things go together. Uh, And we can give mercy to individuals in a way that it will change their lives. Two quick stories. Number one, I've told you this one before, the second one I have it. Jack Miller, just one of my favorite stories, uh, professor at Westminster in Philadelphia, um, wrote a lot on sonship, started Surge Missionary Organization. Uh, He was out, they were speaking at a conference and he was out uh, with a bunch of other pastors and he was in his 80s at this point and he disappeared. They lost him. They thought he went to the bathroom and he never, he never came back. They asked the waiter, have you seen Jack? They checked the bathroom, can't find Jack. Uh, they went, you know, checked all the spaces in the restaurant, can't find Jack. It's been like 30 or 40 minutes and now they're, now they're all worried. Like, where's Jack? You know, we're, he's got to speak tomorrow. Like, what are we doing here? And they finally went outside and there was a public park outside of the restaurant that they were in and Jack was in the public park at like 10 o'clock at night laying down in the grass, in the wet grass, looking up at the stars. And they're like, did he pass out? And so the pastors ran over there, and Jack had seen this drunk guy stumble out of the bar, go to the public park, and lay down. And Jack saw that happen when he was at the restaurant and immediately followed him out there, and he was laying in the grass beside him, sharing the gospel with him. He's associating with him without endorsing him. He's being a presence with him in that situation and trying to give him the mercy he needs, but in no way is he endorsing his behavior. It's a mercy to an individual at that moment. Let me tell you one. I only have one, but I lost a dear friend, a couple of dear friends this week, uh, and Harry and... Uh, Tim, and um, Tim was always, he's always been so kind to me. Met him years ago, I was part of a think tank, and they wanted to have two young pastors, and so me and a guy named Greg Thompson were the young pastors, and this was probably 20 years ago, and I met Tim that night, and uh, he said, let's have dinner, and we did, and we talked about Pittsburgh Steelers football the whole time, and he would always return my calls He'd always, even at the height of his career, you know, he had spoken to Parliament, British Parliament, and I sent him an email that week, and 
about a situation with me and Elizabeth, and he wrote me back. And then he said at the end of the email, uh, you know I wrote a book on marriage, don't you? I said, yeah. I wrote him back and said, I just didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> Cheap like that. I was with him. Uh, I negotiated out this uh, big debate between Tim and another guy who I won't mention his name, who I adore, but he doesn't look the best in this story, um, to in the PCA, have a debate between the two of them so that we could show the denomination what it looks like for two brothers to disagree and still be unified. And so we negotiated that out, and it was, I was at the head table. It was me, Brian Chappell, who was moderating Tim, this other guy, and Elizabeth, who had no idea who any of these people are. And if it's not Matthew McConaughey, she doesn't care. And so I'm like, it's Tim Keller. She's like, he's bald. So we were there... And this uh, other guy's son, who was 10, kept coming up to him looking for affection. He had all these figurines, like Dungeons and Dragons kind of figurines, and he, uh, he was just getting shunned off by his dad. Tim saw that. We were debating at that moment. This is 10 minutes before the debate happens. There's 3,000 people in the room. We're debating the rules of the debate. Tim sees this kid get shunned, grabs him, who he knew him, put him on his lap, took his reading glasses, put him on his head, and said, tell me every one of these figures' names. Tell me, if this guy fights this guy, who wins? What happens here? We're in the middle of this thing, and all Tim could think was, this 10-year-old kid needs mercy. This 10-year-old kid needs affection. This 10-year-old kid needs love. I'll never forget them walking up to the platform and the other guy saying, I don't even know what we're doing. And Tim put his arm around them and said, we'll be fine. That little kid, you can give mercy to individuals. And all of us should, on the soccer field, in the restaurant, even in these halls, to look around and to say, who in my orbit, who in my world needs to know the mercy of Christ? That's number one. Quickly, number two, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy in our calling. And here's what I mean by that. We're called to have both principles of conscience and principles of conviction. First of all, principles of conscience. You and I might have our consciences pricked in different ways, and that's okay. Even in a marriage, I've had husband and wife not be able to come to an agreement on what they do with the daughter's wedding. And if that happens within the sanctity of home, it's going to happen with all of us because all of our consciences are sometimes pricked differently. For example, let me give it an uh, example form of the exile. Esther used her beauty and put herself through a a year regimen program to save the Jews from Haman. But Jeremiah just wept the whole time. And then Ezekiel in exile decided that he wanted to prophesy and try to create a hopeful culture for people to be able to live into and dream about what life would be when they got back to Jerusalem. And then Daniel was subversive and didn't want to eat, wanted to disassociate and not eat the fruits and the vegetables. But then Joseph went all in and tried to gain political power so he could save his family. All of them in similar situations acted differently based on their personality and how they thought the Lord was calling them. And then our convictions at the same time are also different. So there are three concentric circles of conviction. The first is concern, the second is responsibility, and the third is influence. 
And so, for example, all of us have to be concerned about abortion. All of us, if you're a Christian, have to understand that it's a sin. But then there's responsibility. Some of you might be called to help at a crisis pregnancy center. You have a little bit more responsibility. And then a very small subset of that might have influence. And by that I mean you might have the ability to do something in legislation or to change something on a massive scale. But not all people have influence and not all people have responsibility. And so we learned that some of these things line up differently. Now here's what we're asking for you to think about today. That we can't be mentally lazy anymore. We can't be theologically lazy because it leads to intellectual snobbery. Uh, Where we simply trope out the same things that we've heard rather than thinking deeply about your convictions and your conscience. In other words, thinking deeply about how you, at this point in your life, with how you're gifted, can best please the Lord. How can you best honor him? And that might work out a little bit differently, but it's needed. And here's why. Francis Schaeffer wrote in 1976, and how then could we live? Most people catch their presuppositions from their family and surrounding society the way a child catches the measles. But people with understanding realize that their presuppositions should be chosen after a careful consideration of which worldview is true. In other words, what Schaeffer argues is, don't just go along with the stream. Here is a simple but profound truth. If there are no absolutes by which we judge society, then society is absolute. That was written in 1976. That is so true today. If we take out all the absolutes, all the convictions, if we just get lazy about where we're convicted, uh, then society is going to decide it for us. Society is left with one man or an elite filling the vacuum left by the loss of Christian consensus, which originally gave us form and freedom. And so, friends, here's what we do. We, in our minds, think deeply. What am I convicted about? What are my absolutes? And now, what should I do in this situation to best please the Lord? And there might be different opinions there, and that's okay. The goal is holiness. The goal is not only our sanctification, but the evangelism of the world. But we might take some different paths to get there from time to time. Quick two points. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy to the world. The easiest way for you to think about how you interact with the world is as an ambassador. An ambassador goes to a foreign land practices some of their customs, but not all of their customs, and they bring uh, the kingdom to that land. There's an old word called peregrination, and it's a word that missionaries used uh, in the sixth century. And peregrination basically means to go on the long walking journey. Missionaries in the sixth century would do missions work like this. They would get up and they would pack their bags for like two or three months and then they would start walking, peregrination, until they found a place that didn't know about Jesus. And then they'd stay there for as long as it took to evangelize everybody. That's how they did missions. And oftentimes, those Celtic believers in the 6th century would get to a little island where nobody had ever heard the gospel, and they'd get off their boats. This was their practice. And they would bend their knees on those shores. And the first thing they would say is, the kingdom of God is now here. 
Hey, when you go to your sports practice and you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is now there. When you go to your workplace and you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is now there. When you go to that restaurant and you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is now there. And this world needs to see an unnerving amount of mercy and grace given to those who don't know him with an unwavering commitment to our own personal holiness. Both of those things held together because last point, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And you gotta give mercy to yourself. Go back to that scene in Matthew chapter nine. Jesus in there with all the riffraff tax collectors, sinners. How could you be holy and hang out with that lot? Where are you in that picture? Are you in the home or are you the Pharisee outside of the home? Just not wanting to associate with those people. The interesting thing about that scene is just because you clean up well, and you all do, you all all look stunning today, doesn't mean that you're not a horrendous sinner. And just because you've grown in sanctification, and we should, that does not mitigate the fact that our identity is primarily in our justification. And that without the saving grace of Christ, everybody would be looking at us going, why would Jesus ever associate with them? Which means with you. And even us Christians, we tend to run and not want to associate with Jesus at time time. You just look at that picture on the cross. Everybody wanted to get away. It looks like he lost. Just a few women crying and a bunch of soldiers, some playing games, some arguing over his clothes, some trying to figure out why they're going to break his legs or when they're going to break his legs so they can go home for the night. But a lot of the disciples going, I don't want to be associated with that guy. It looks like this whole thing has failed. But you know what? Jesus wants to be associated with you while not endorsing your sin. I want you to picture, do you have a most embarrassing moment? It's kind of the parlor game for Christians when you're at a community group for the first time. What's your most embarrassing moment? Everybody has one. I've got like 150. But I want you to think in your mind, and you might have to close your eyes. I won't be overly cheesy, but if you can't concentrate, close your eyes. I want you to think of that moment where you felt all alone. That moment where you felt abandoned. That moment where your family didn't want anything to do with you. That moment where you said something to your spouse that you never, you never can get back. And now you don't know whether you want to repent or apologize, but you sure don't want to apologize. And if you repent, you don't know if she'll forgive you. That moment where you were caught red-handed gossiping. I want you to think about that moment, an embarrassing moment. At that moment, you're truly known and truly loved. At that moment, it's when Jesus says, you're mine. He's with me. She's with me. Everybody else in the world might abandon them, but they're my son and they're my daughter. And as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, I am not ashamed to call them my brother. It's the beautiful picture of the gospel. I'll close with this. I went a little bit long, but you're getting your money's worth. 
I was uh, I had a Zoom call with Stephen Jones. He's a dear friend of mine. He's a missionary in London, and um, we spent we caught up personally, and then we spent the rest of the time together talking about counseling theory. But what that came to was. Uh, he and I talking about pastoring ourselves and each other and other people and how sometimes you find somebody that is embarrassed and all alone and shameful and already broken and metaphorically naked and you have to take to them the righteousness of Christ and clothe them and say it's going to be okay we're going to the gospel covers over your shame and then other times you find people that are prideful and self-righteous And you have to take a sheet and wrap it around them and say, metaphorically speaking, take off all of those prideful grave clothes you're still wearing and repent and put on these new clothes of Christ and remember who you are in his kingdom. So some of you might need, maybe you're broken this morning. Maybe you still feel embarrassed. Maybe you still feel shamed. You need to sense and know the love of Christ for you who covers over your sins. And for others of you who are prideful, you need to be reminded it's time to repent. Take off the grave clothes and be covered again in his righteousness. Let me pray. Father, I righteousness thinking we've got it figured out and other people don't, being prideful. Typically, we lead towards our comfort and our security rather than reaching out to the lost. So often, we don't want to be associated with those who are hurting or those who are needing you. We would rather live in the echo chamber of our own worlds uh, where we can confirm our own opinions without having to think of others. But we pray, Father, that you would make more and more this church a church which is light and darkness, a church which goes out into the world and with an unnerving amount of mercy patterns an unwavering commitment to pleasing you in holiness. It's so unique. It's so odd. It's so disparate from what we think we should be. But Father, as we sing this last song and as we remind ourselves of the gift of Jesus, our Redeemer, may we look long and hard today at how, Christ, you lived your life on this earth. And may we think through our lives afresh and anew today of how we should live it, of who we could give mercy to, of who we could associate with in order to bring the light of the gospel to them. We pray these things in your name. Amen.